Over the summer, as the video hopefully um, showed, we're looking at uh, the topic of destinations, okay? Uh, we like to look at uh, where we'd like to be in our Christian lives, where we wish we were in our Christian lives. Um, I don't know, Andy said before about some who maybe have been on holiday, some who are yet to go on holiday, and some of you in the last category might well have been seeing your friends swanning off all over the place recently and being in Brum. Well, I think it's been sunny last couple of weeks. Has it been sunny? I've, I've, been, I've been off swanning away, so <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's been sunny? Yeah, okay. So it's not been too bad, but you might be thinking, oh, look, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. Um, I think we can do the same in our spiritual lives in, in a good way, actually, as well. We can see uh, character states uh, or uh, character traits or sometimes states of mind, I guess, uh, exhibited by other people. Or uh, more, more, I mean, honing in more on this in the series that we see in the Bible, that we think, actually, I'm not there, but I wish I was there in my spiritual life. And uh, last week, again, I'm, I'm clutching this a little bit and just checking that things went the way I thought, though. But was it last week, contentment? Is that correct? Yes. Good. We're on the same page. The world has not shifted massively since I was away. So that's good. So contentment last week. Today, we're going to look at another place, if you'd like to call it like that, we might wish we were in our spiritual lives, which is wisdom. And the question uh, I want to ask is really how, very simple, how do we get wise? Okay. Um, now, I, I recognize uh, this is the often comment on this. I mean, Andy often have a bit of banter of how the, how the pieces fall with the sermons, who gets which sermon. You know, I, I quite like this one. I think it's good. It was originally going to be Andy's, actually, but I was happy to steal this off him because, let's face it, everyone wants to be wise. It's a universally good thing, isn't it? I mean, if, if you could have the power of movement in your right arm, and I was to say, put your hand up if you'd like to be wise, you probably would put your hand up. I'm not, I'm not going to do it, but you, I'm sure that we'd all agree with that. Everyone thinks wisdom is a good thing. Even if we said something like love, would you like to be more loving? We go, oh, there's a cost to that. How would that work for me? Wisdom's like, yeah, well, everyone wants to be wise, don't they? And so it's kind of a, kind of a good talk to land on. The problem is, and I don't know if you've noticed this, with so many desirable or valuable things, sometimes actually to get those things, and the fact that so many people want to have it, but as we look around in our world, we'd probably, most of us come to the conclusion uh, that it's not very common that people have this. Actually, there's a cost uh, to seeking after wisdom, and getting it's not so straightforward. In fact, I'd like to focus today on the one thing that the Bible says that you need to build into your life first and foremost if you do want to become wise. And as we can see, I'll keep up my sleeve uh, for a minute or two more, but as you will see in a minute, it couldn't be any more culturally unacceptable as a thing. It couldn't be less kind of summary, even with the, the clouds kind of hovering over our heads, is just not that thing. Wisdom, yes, we want that. How do you get there? Well, as you'll see, that's a challenge, and it's going to be a challenge for us. So right at the outset, before I even reveal my, my hand on that one, my question is going to be not do you want to be wise, but really how much do you want to be wise? To what lengths are you prepared to go to get wisdom? At the very least, you're going to need to persevere this morning and focus on, I think, something that's a difficult topic, a little bit of an elephant in the room in Christianity a lot of the time, and then, even more difficult, work out how to apply that to your life. book of Proverbs that we're going to look at in a minute talks of wisdom. It says, it's more precious than silver, more costly than gold and diamonds. Well, are we going to pay that cost? I want to put that in your mind right at the beginning today because there will be a cost for this thing. 
Okay, so while your mind's whirring on that, let's give a little bit of helpful definition to what I'm talking about because I suppose it's helpful to say what is wisdom before we go any further. I'd imagine that for most of us, we kind of intuitively grasp roughly the idea, but let's face it, wisdom is quite tricky to exactly pin down. It involves a whole load of different things. To be wise, there is stuff that you need to know, I guess. So knowledge is involved. But more importantly, I suppose as well, there are skills that you need to learn. Whereas like discernment, I guess, would come in, good judgment. Also, there are moral qualities you need to develop to be wise as well. Courage, kindness, generosity. If I was to fit it into one definition, I think the definition uh, I'd use is for wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the ability to see the world as it really is and live accordingly. Wisdom is the ability to see the world as it really is and live accordingly. To be able to kind of penetrate the fog and the spin and what things appear like. Actually, I know what's really going on here and I'm going to live in the path that I need to live in in correspondence with those facts. That's wisdom, to see how life really is and to live accordingly. And I'd like to kind of predictably start, as I mentioned a minute ago, looking in the obvious place in the Bible uh, for wisdom, and that is the book of Proverbs. Okay, a whole book of the Bible given over to this, a number of books actually, wisdom books uh, in the Bible. But this is kind of the go-to one. So if you've got a Bible, uh, lots of scriptures are going to come up. We're going to start here. We're going to bounce around all over the place. Uh, But Proverbs 1, I think, you know, that seems fitting. Wisdom, Proverbs 1. I think I'm on the right track there, hopefully anyway. Um, Proverbs 1, I just want to read the beginning just to show, to to defend, I suppose, why we're starting in Proverbs. Uh, The writer, there are a number of writers, the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, and uh, it starts off where uh, Solomon, uh, who's the first one of the main writers of Proverbs, he describes why the book uh, is written. He says, Proverbs 1, verses 4, 4 to 6, I'll go actually. He says, this book was written for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. He puts it pretty bluntly at the beginning. He's basically saying this, whoever you are, whether you, you consider yourself simple, Okay, not many of us would kind of own up to that, but I suppose we're all a little bit simple at times. Or whether you already think you're wise, which if you think that too much, you're probably simple. So, you know, that, that kind of balances out. Whether you're young, whether you're old, whoever you are, this is to help you get wise. This is what's being written here. And uh, on the back of this, uh, the rest of the book, the rest of the 31 chapters, uh, if, if you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll know most of it features these little kind of sayings, pithy little sayings, uh, helping us towards wise ways of living and guiding us away from foolish ways of living. And the book is very practical and very down to earth in that sort of way. I remember uh, when I was at university, uh, one of my housemates, a guy who wasn't a Christian, he came to me one day and said, Johnny, I've started reading the Bible. And I was oh, great, fantastic, this is brilliant news. Where, what? What bit? Are you starting at the beginning? Are you looking at Jesus? What you? He said, I've decided to study Proverbs. Kind of completely off, off, <laughs> off the bat. I mean, what? And I, actually, as he read, he, he read Proverbs. He really seemed to really enjoy it. He didn't, we talked a bit about it as time went on. But I went back to living the way he lived before, really. But for him, there would have been things he could gain from Proverbs. There's really helpful stuff. They're practical things. If you want to be wise, you know what? Don't go out and get plastered all the time. That's, that's in there. Be generous with your stuff. Listen to advice from other people. Some really helpful, practical stuff in there. However, I knew as he was reading Proverbs, just to read that though, he was going to struggle really to find wisdom just from those little sayings. This is what he wanted to do. Because there's a bigger context to Proverbs and there's a background to Proverbs that's vitally important 
that if you don't catch this in the book, well, you don't get wisdom at all. Because there's a key principle laid out in Proverbs that lies behind all successful pursuits of wisdom. All the other instructions come on the back of this. As we read on, it's in the next verse here, verse 7 of Proverbs 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's in case you're struggling with the knowledge-wisdom thing. Again, those words are sometimes used interchangeably in Proverbs. This phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, is then picked up throughout the whole book. Maybe most clearly in Proverbs 9 verse 10. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's picked up all the way through that, but also through the rest of the Old Testament as well. That phrase comes out, what's the beginning of wisdom? How do you get on the path of wisdom? What's the means of travel while on that path? What's the guiding principle that anyone follows who wants to be wise? It's simple. You fear God. don't know if anyone can uh, understand why I said what I said a minute ago. Could you get a more culturally inappropriate idea <laughs> than to say, today, what, do you, what do we, should we do today? What should we get in the Bible? Fear God. You know what? I'm not imagining that many of you got out of bed this morning and thought, I'd love to hear a sermon today on the fear of the Lord. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I, I would imagine that's not where we're at. And I think maybe for good reason. I think generally, um, we would have an aversion and probably a healthy aversion to fear. Fear is seen as entirely negative. We don't usually think of it in a positive way at all. We fight our fears. We conquer our fears. We don't build our life on fear. That sounds incredibly strange. Psychologically speaking, embracing a life of fear sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, what are they on about here? So just generally, this sounds like a bit of a strange idea. And that could be the case whether you're here as a Christian or you're not a Christian. Now, for those who are Christians, who would know the Bible a bit more, there's other issues that are going on here. I think we would, some of us would have more of a theological problem with this. But let's face it, the idea of fearing God seems to sit very uncomfortably with the idea of loving God. Or even more so, the idea of fearing God sits very uncomfortably with the idea of God loving us, doesn't it? I mean, we know from the Bible that God loves us and values us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Not only that, if we come to know Jesus, if we, if we follow Jesus, we come into good, to be part of God's people in such a way that God, the ruler of all things, uh, covenants, promises to bring all things, work all things together for our good. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. I mean, where does fear fit in that, that whole thing? How does that work? I don't know if you've ever thought about that or asked that question. But with that kind of background, and that's a right, a good background, really, I think there's a temptation for Christians to then reinterpret this phrase to fit more neatly into our understanding. Because it seems to kind of jar, jar a little bit, this phrase that keeps cropping up all over the Bible. Has that just a, a kind of, just a, it nod at me. Has this ever caused you any alarm before? Any of you? Is this, is this now a fear of God got that? Nod at me. If this has caused you alarm, nod. So there's a few. I mean, you're way beyond this, you know. Get you doing the sermons. It's, it's cool. We'll do that next time. But for, the, for those of you nodding, uh, I want to really help you. Well, hopefully help you with this uh, today. Because I think what I've done before is try to reinterpret this praise. So, so you might have heard this. What's the fear of the Lord? Well, it, it can't be fear. So therefore, what is it? Well, maybe it's kind of an extreme respect. Like imagine you were to meet the queen. And you were to bow or curtsy in extreme respect. That's kind of fear. And some people who put it like that. Some people put it more like this. Imagine you stand before a huge mountain. Some of you might have gone to 
place with big mountains, like walking. I don't know. You walk mountains or climb mountains. I'm not really a mountain person. But anyway, you might stand before a big mountain. You go, oh, it's that kind of take your breath away. Whoa, that's a bit like fear. That kind of sense of awe that you get in that sort of sense. And you know what? I think both of those images are reasonably helpful. I think they could, could help us here. But I definitely don't think that's all that is meant by this phrase. I think it's really important that we recognize that it is, imp- it is good to grapple with concepts and ideas and teachings of the Bible. I think just to be clear, that is important. Often we come to phrases or words or ideas and we, we think, on face value, that looks like it means this. But you know what? That's difficult. So I want to just check. We want to ask questions like, what did that actually mean to the people then at the time? What did the author actually have in mind here? Other good questions of how does this relate to other teachings in the Bible? We believe as Christians, God speaks coherently through these 66 books of the Bible. And so we want to check those things out. We want to do those things. That's important. And that means sometimes we don't take words and ideas in the Bible purely on face value, just as regards how we'd use those words in our culture. That's true. I want to, so that's important. That's why we spend so long as we do on sermons, I suppose, in the morning on a Sunday. But with that said, there is a temptation, I think, to, to overdo that and go too far the other way where we don't want to just get to grips with the Bible to kind of find out what's going on under the surface. It's the fact is we just don't want to accept what it says. The obvious meaning seems so difficult to us that we want it to mean something else. And so we kind of pretend to do some study and just actually go, well, actually, I know some other Christians who think that this means something different, so I'll just jump with them because it's easier for me. We've got to be so careful how we treat God's word. This is going to be a message running through this whole talk. Actually, in the whole topic of the fear of the Lord is exactly this. When we come across God's words, we don't just treat them like, oh, it could mean this, could be that. That church down the road says that, and that's much easier for me to believe. So, you know, it's easier. Now, that is not the fear of the Lord. Proverbs lays out another path called folly. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, and that way leads to death. What characterizes the path of folly is, well, I just want to do what I want to do. I'm on the way that I like being on. We can do that even as we come to phrases like this. We've got to be so careful. This here home to me, actually, when I was reading a commentary on this passage by a popular Christian author, who I might say will remain unnamed, even if pressed at the end of the talk. I'll be going off quickly at the end. And he's a good, good guy, this guy, but I think he's got this one completely off beam. Um, he was commenting this, and he said, uh, amazing comment, really. He said, right, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? Well, that means that to be wise, you must start with the realization that God is head over heels in love with you. Think about that for a second. Fear of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means understanding God is head over heels in love with you. And maybe the language there is quite flowery, but technically I suppose we'd say yes, that's, that is true. But does that mean the same thing? It could, isn't it the case that those things are the opposite things? That's not redefining a word. That's erasing a word and replacing it with something opposite. Could there be anything less fearsome than the image of somebody gazing longingly into your eyes and cooing childishly? Oh, I'm head over heels in love with you. Ah, quick run. You're terrifying me. Unless, of course, he's presenting God like some sort of stalker, (laughs) which I don't think he is. I don't think we're going down that route. Okay. But you see what's happened? Actually, as we try to kind of weasel out of things, we end up, the word doesn't matter at all. I'm just going to have it what it means, what I want it to mean. We've got to be very careful with this stuff. And I'd ask, well, as we look at this, to try to push away our natural preferences as to what we'd like the fear of the Lord to mean and really try to get to what this phrase actually means in the Bible. But I think when we do that, it's not that hard 
to get to the bottom of this phrase? I'll answer it in three ways, actually. Uh, firstly, ask the question just in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, what does the fear of the Lord mean? That's actually reasonably straightforward. It's a contained, few authors, but it's a contained book, so we can do that. Then I want to zoom out and say, well, then in the context of the Old Testament, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Okay, we, you're fine. We can do that as well. That's okay. That's not, that, not, not going to take us ages. You think, what? We're doing the whole Old Testament. Well, beat that. Then let's zoom out again and do the whole of the New Testament as well. So I'm ambitious. I've just come back from a holiday. I'm feeling optimistic. Okay? And you're fine. We can do that as well. Okay? But systematically, let's do that. So let's start. What does the fear of the Lord mean in the book of Proverbs? Okay? Now, when the writer of Proverbs talks about fear, this isn't particularly controversial, really. They don't primarily mean respect. And they don't mean admiration or awe. And they don't, strangely as it might seem, mean the natural response of a teenage boy to his girlfriend. Don't mean any of that. Um, I don't know quite how to put this, but they mean fear. You know, as in fear? You know that kind of idea? That's what the writer to the Proverbs means. Being afraid that bad stuff might happen to you is the phrase that is the meaning of the word. It's funny, really, because people are often at pains to say that the fear of God is not like fear of certain people. The writer of the Proverbs is at pains to show you that's exactly what it is, especially in relation to one person. And that person, the image used, is of the king. It comes up over and over again in Proverbs. Actually, Jesus picks up on this as well. But the two ideas are put right next to each other. I'll show you what I mean. Proverbs 24, 21 to 22. I think we've got that one. Fear the Lord and the king, my son. And do not join with rebellious officials. For those two will send sudden destruction on them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. Just think about that for a moment. You've got this writer, or these writers, using this phrase, fear of the Lord. A bit of an ambiguous phrase all the way through the book. Well, what does it mean? Well, in this verse, clearly the writer is putting it up against another type of fear that we can understand. Fear of an authoritative power. Okay, And saying, they're, they're pretty much the same. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying with this. Fear the Lord and fear the king because they operate in similar ways. They bring sudden destruction on those who rebel against them. So they should be feared in similar ways. As you then look through the book of Proverbs, you'll find that almost every proverb that encourages the fear of the Lord encourages within it a reminder of what will happen if we don't fear the Lord. Pick up a number of examples. One in Proverbs 10, 27 says this, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Fear God, what will happen if I don't? Well, I don't want my life to be cut short. There's a fear of punishment involved there. Actually, most of the references to the fear of the Lord work like this. Fearing God leads to a good thing that you want, and it saves you from this bad thing that you really don't want to happen to you. Just like you'd fear a kind of political authority in that way. If you respect the king and follow his laws, you'll be rewarded. If you don't, you'll be punished. Okay? Now, I, I hope that minds are whirring at this point and hoping the sermon is not about to end. Because if that's all we had, we would recognize we have something very different to Christianity going on right here. Okay? Because if that was the end of the story, that's what our relationship with God boiled down to. The best we could say is that we have a sort of cold, begrudging obedience to God. Oh, better do what he says or he'll smite me. That sort of idea. That's not, well, I'm just hoping on the same page here. That's not Christianity. That's not how we're encouraged to relate to God. Glad to hear as well. That's not how the people of God in the Old Testament were encouraged to relate to him either. But while we're going to move on from this, we have to understand 
fear of the Lord does involve fear of punishment. It does. It's in the idea. It's not all there is, but it is there somewhere. So let's zoom out then, and let's see how that works. And I think, think in the context of the rest of the Old Testament, we see that quite clearly. Now, Told you I was optimistic. Dealt with the whole of Proverbs in about five minutes, haven't I? So let's do the whole of Deuteronomy now, shall we? I should, I should be allowed more holidays, you know. <laughs> um, the book of Deuteronomy, key in the Old Testament, fifth book of the Torah, which the Jews take as their scriptures. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses basically recaps on the entire law. The law given on Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, sort of the tip of the iceberg, these 631 laws that God gives to Moses. And in Deuteronomy, he recaps on them for everyone. He kind of summarizes the whole thing. And it's funny because Deuteronomy, in many ways, functions very similarly to the way Proverbs functions. She probably should be that the other way around because Proverbs was later. But basically, in both books, you have this idea, we haven't had time to look at it with Proverbs too much, of life and death. That's what the writer of the Proverbs holds out. If you, the path of wisdom goes to life, the path of folly goes to death. And exactly the same happens in Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 16. Moses lays out these paths. I just want to say, see if you can spot a difference, though, from what I've said in this passage in Deuteronomy, from what we've seen in Proverbs. Now listen, Moses says, Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. Like Proverbs, as I said, two paths. One leads to life, one leads to death. But there's a difference here on how you get to the path to life. Anyone, any, any, as we were in a game show by the look of the video from earlier, any contribution from the audience, what's the difference? You get to life by fearing God in Proverbs. How do you get to it here? Loving God, it says quite clearly. wonder what's going on here then. Maybe the right of the Proverbs is getting a bit muddled. I mean, he's got some nice things to say, hasn't he? As he goes on, but he gets a bit confused. Moses, you know, he's got it. Which is it? Is it fear or is it love? In the 1990s, a gangster film, A Bronx Tale, featuring Robert De Niro. I'm not going to my art house collection for this illustration. This is mainstream cinema. So has anyone seen the film A Bronx Tale? No, I like, the, I, like, I like the education I get to bring you. This is mainstream cinema, guys. Anyway, um, The Bronx Tale, which is a Robert De Niro. Do we know Robert De Niro? Do you know that guy? Yeah, okay, good, fantastic. Okay, um, in this film, basically, it's about an Italian-American mob boss, and he takes this young guy under his wing to train him to become a gangster. Okay? The young guy's dad is Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro's not very happy about it, and so conflict ensues, as you might imagine. Okay? But there's one scene where the young guy, the gangster protege, he asks the mob boss... And he, he asks this question. He says to him, as a mob boss, uh, would you prefer to be loved or would you prefer to be feared? And uh, Chaz Parmenteri, then we've got a picture, possibly. He's not an owl. There is the next slide. Yeah, there he is. Look at him, Chaz. You didn't mess with him, would you? Chaz, would you prefer to be loved or to be feared? It'd be great if I could get him now to talk to you. I can't do that. I could, but James, I, James, come on, pull your finger out of the back there. Anyway, he asks him this question, and Chaz says to him, not called Chaz in the film, that would be slightly less menacing. Um, he says, um, look, it would be nice to be both, completely agree, but that's completely impossible. So therefore, I would prefer to be feared, and in this kind of great gangster, he says, because the fear lasts longer. Okay, like that's his answer, the mob boss in a Bronx town. I'd rather be feared because the fear lasts longer. I wonder whether sometimes we can offer God the same dilemma as is offered in this film. It's like this, God, which would you prefer? Would you prefer my love or would you prefer my fear? 
And uh, we might say that some Christians, the kind of the old guard, you might say, they think, I think he wants us to fear him. And so they live their lives, oh, I'm really sorry, oh, lightning bolts, no. That's how they would live. But those, the more modern, up-to-date Christians, well, they realize that no, God would prefer to be loved. But the underlying thing is that he can't be both because those things are polar opposites. They're completely different things. You know what? If you'd put that dilemma to Moses, say, what would God prefer? He would not have understood you one bit. He'd say, I just don't get the question. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because you see, while Moses encouraged Israel to love God over and over again, on at least 14 occasions in Deuteronomy, he encouraged them to fear God as well. In fact, not just that, he uses the two words as if they're the same word. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God. Just a note here, when it says only in the Bible, you kind of, you should get this sense, I think there's something else coming here as well. <laughs> I require that you only fear the Lord your God. I've got that then. And live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. The two things are the same. We fear him, we love him. But you see, the Bible does not agree that God has to choose between our fear and our love. In our relationship with God, love and fear are intermingled in such a way that the, the two things must work together or we will misunderstand who God is. I wonder actually whether the struggles we have with these concepts is not theological, maybe it's practical. Because the big question then becomes, but how on earth would we do that? What? possible human relationship could there be whereby we combine love close intimate relationship and fear practically how do we do it and with that question in mind we zoom out once again and we come to the new testament because the new testament gives us a very very practical and helpful answer to that question now just to be clear give us some context the new testament also It's very clear, as I'm sure you'll be aware, that we should love God. According to Jesus, it was our highest calling as human beings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, anything you've got, basically. Love him. That's the most important commandment, okay? But just like Deuteronomy, we are still consistently called to fear God as well in the New Testament. I've got a couple of verses that will come up there. Maybe uh, I'm just going to pick on one of them, actually. I think often we can think, well, fear is that healthy thing. No, and for healthy, mature believers, not those who've kind of grown past this, oh, now I understand God properly. No, for healthy believers, they fear God. Acts 9.31. Uh, we got that one? I think the machine, oh, there we go. Uh, it's just there. It says, it was a comment on a thriving church. It says, the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria and became stronger. How? As the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. It's a positive thing in the New Testament. So basically, then the picture is exactly the same. We love God and we fear God. But what the New Testament adds to this is, it's so helpful, I think, is a picture by which we can understand how this actually works. And it's found in the picture Jesus gives us, the most, one of the most basic pictures of Christianity, of the way we should understand God. So Jesus' disciples came to him, look, Jesus, how do we talk to God? How do we talk to him? Jesus said this to them. This is the first thing you need to get right. You understand who he is. He's our father. Our father. I think that image is so helpful on this topic here. You might be thinking, I don't think that's helpful at all. I'm completely at sea how that could be of any help to us. I understand, Father, and it does not involve that, Johnny. Bear with me. I'll explain what I mean. I I think that it's important when we come again, just kind of getting into the 
mechanics of how the Bible works, I suppose. It's, we can get words and we can just rip them out and just nick them and just assume they mean what we think they mean because of our culture and all that. When Jesus said, our father, Abba, the Aramaic word, when people heard that word, what he was communicating was what people generally thought about fathers in that community at that time, okay? It's not massively different to how it is now, but it is different in some ways. And one of the key differences would have been, it would have been a given to absolutely anyone who was listening at Jesus' time, that in a family working properly, children should have a balance of love and fear for their fathers. That would have been a complete, just obviously, that's obviously the case. Not to take away from one side or the other, but just that's how people would have heard what was said. In Jewish culture, as in I think almost every culture in the world now as, as ever, a father is, was supposed to be kind and always look out for the good of his children, but he was also supposed to be stern and enforce family discipline when necessary. As Christians, you know what? We revel in the wonder that we can call God Father. If you don't, I, I think that's, that, the word revel is appropriate there. We should revel in that word. We should swim around in that word. Wow, God's our Father. That was revolutionary teaching from Jesus. That people weren't talking about that before Jesus. That's new stuff. That's an amazing, that's an eye-opening revelation. What, we can call him our Father? We can consider ourselves the children of the one who made everything? That's incredible. And it's incredible because of the intimacy that that gives us to God. The real close relationship. He's not just a king. Jesus is not the king image is wrong. Jesus uses the king image. There's important aspects of that image that's important about God. But more importantly, more primarily, what is it? He's our father. We're close to him. But we must be very careful that we don't go too far and read a 21st century Western view of parenthood into what Jesus said. God is not a Victorian father, cold and harsh and distant. I don't know if Victorian fathers ever were like that, but that's how for now they're painted, but he's not that. But you know what? He's not Daddy Pig either. The parents know what I'm talking about. Something, who's Daddy Pig? Those of you who still wish you were here. Um, in the Peppa Pig, the famous children's program. <laughs> Daddy Pig is presented, the father is a bumbling ineffective, disengaged figure of fun around the home. He just sits on his sofa and everyone laughs at him. Clearly he's like two-year-old pig boy. What's a baby pig called? Piglet. Okay. <laughs> but he's lovable, isn't he? He's a lovable chap. I've heard, many, I've heard a number of people say to me that actually that's the model of fatherhood. That's what I want to aim for in my parenting. You know? I can't be it. People get it. My kids can take the mick out of me. I don't care. But they love me. They think I'm all right. You know, I get to sit on the sofa reading my paper. It's fine. I want to be absolutely clear. That image was not in Jesus' mind when he said, call God your father. Jesus, he could see lots of things. I'm sure he might have been able to even predict Peppa Pig. He wasn't thinking of Daddy Pig at the time. Now, listen, I, I joke a little. I recognize this is a difficult topic. I recognize that for all of us, our own fathers will not have modeled this perfectly. By Jesus using this image, he, he risked this happening right from the offset. And for some, actually, the, the suggestion that there's a healthy place for fear in a family unit may be particularly difficult. Because maybe in your home, as you grew up, it was far from healthy. Because it was far, that's how the family operated. That's how uh, your dad got stuff done, got you to do things. So it was all fear. Listen, I want to make absolutely clear. Neither Jesus, 
the Bible or I am in any way endorsing abusive fathers who rule their homes by a reign of terror. No way. Far from it. It's not a trace of that in the Bible. Wherever that kind of thing happens, it's condemned. However, the biblical vision of fatherhood does carry a measure of authority and proactivity that should at times evoke at least a similar feeling to that in a dad's kids. I've kind of stumbled across this, I think, as a parent. We've got three kids now, eight, five, and two. Those aren't their names, just trying to remember their ages. <laughs> a good way to keep them in line. But. And uh, when me and Gemma, my wife, when we set out, we set out to have kids, I don't know if you do that, but when we had kids, it wasn't like, let's, let's didn't get to them and say, right, well, this is how we can do this. Good cop, bad cop. That's how this is going to work, okay? That's not, wasn't that how we w- went. But, but I found naturally as, as the kids have grown up, there are times that they have a fear for me that they don't have of her, okay? So I'll give you an example, a specific example this term. I came home from work one day and it was all very quiet at home. Learned to be a bit suspicious of that when that's the case. So I said to Gemma, I said, oh, well, what's, what's happening with the kids? And it turns out Hope, my five-year-old, had had a bad day at school. At her school, that is, uh, the, what happens is you get put on the sad side of the board. Pam, do you use sad side of the board? Nah, that's those Kings Norton schools. I knew it. We're going to move to Harborn. Anyway, but they, they put her on the, 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 the wretches that they are at that school. They put them on the sad side uh, of the of board. And... Um, uh, now, this is something we, we, we don't encourage in our home, and Gemma dealt with it as we agreed to deal with it. Her pocket money had gone, and her favourite programme had been removed for the rest of the week, and Hope had taken this all very well in the car. I'm really sorry, Mum. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Until one question was asked. She said, Mum, just a question. You're not going to tell Dad, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and then it kicked off. Okay, apparently she's weeping, she's wailing. Uh, I come home, she's in her room, quietly preparing to face me with the news. I was on the sad side of the board. To be honest, I, at first I found this a little bit disturbing because this is not the first time this has happened. I thought to myself, there's something wrong here. What have I done to my children? Like, what does she expect me to do that is worthy of such concern? I thought there must be something unhealthy in this. This doesn't seem right to me. Actually, what I've come to see, actually, is as I've kept on parenting, trying to do things the way I, I see God wanting me to do things, making mistakes, yeah, but going along and looking in the Bible as well, actually... I think that that's okay. I think it could obviously be overdone massively. It could be overdone, uh, underdone massively as well, actually. But I found that as I live out my God-given responsibility to lead my family and discipline my kids as fairly and graciously as I can, they respond to me in love, but at times with something that could very well be described as fear. When Jesus would have started calling his father Abba, And when John and Paul started teaching about our adoption into God's family, the understanding of how fathers and children related would have certainly had that mixture within it, much more than our society would be comfortable today. When we think of God as our father, of course, we should think of him holding our hands. We should think of him cuddling us, coming alongside us in the things we enjoy. Of course we should think of those things. Those are right. Those are in what Jesus had in mind. To focus solely on those things actually misses the point of what Jesus meant when he referred to God in this way. Who's God? He's our Father. We love him. We fear him. We want to please him. We don't want to dishonor him. We value his gifts and we expect his favor and grace. 
but we tremble before him as those who know our father will be proactive in disciplining his children to bring good for us. We know our father is the one who we can trust more than anyone, the one who we can rely upon more than anyone, the one who loves us more than anyone, but we don't mess with the father. We don't want to come before him with unconfessed sin with a hard heart, with a casual attitude that borders on disrespect. I don't want, you're not going to tell dad, are you? You know what, that feeling should be appropriate to us at times. We love him, we fear him. Maybe Paul puts it most practically for us in Romans eleven twenty two, where he tells the Romans, he says this, consider the kindness and sternness of God. I want to encourage you today, consider the kindness and and sternness of God. Do it now. Do it in a moment as we pray. Do it as we worship. Do it next week. Do it the week after. Do it next year. Build that into your understanding of who God is. Not because, oh no, I always thought it was too good to be true. Brought back to earth. No, no. This is the majesty of our Father. We Actually, we wouldn't have it any other way. He's determined. He's engaged to bring good for us. He's engaged not to leave us as we are, not to let the poison of sin rip into us and, and, and pervert us and corrupt us. He doesn't sit on the sofa with a paper, just disengaged and saying, oh, yeah, you can take the mick out of me. I don't care. I'm doing my own thing. No, he loves us. And that means at times he brings discipline to us that we need to know, you know what, we don't mess with him. He's entirely right. He's entirely good. He's entirely wise. And look, I don't want to cross him. Remember, a few years back, I'd arranged, <laughs> funnily enough, a film evening. I, I do watch a few films. But I, I arranged this film evening. It was a director I quite liked. It's a new film. I hadn't read a lot about it. I called a few mates and said, look, let's come around, organise it all. People bring different snacks and that. We were watching. I've been looking forward to it for ages. I've been deliberately avoiding the reviews because I thought it was going to be slightly dodgy and I didn't want to know until I went to watch it because I might not be able to watch it. Um, one of my friends pointed this out to me. He said, Johnny, really, we're coming to watch that film with you. Really, do you know what the film's about? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, you know. It's going to be okay. Don't worry, right? So the day of the film... Watching the film comes, and I'm off praying in the morning, as is, as is my want. And I'm wandering around the field at the back of my house, and I'm kind of mulling this over a bit. and say, God, God, you know, just so you know, got this film night tonight, you know. Um, I'm sure that's okay, isn't it? And I felt very clearly, I don't know if you get moments like this, God saying, not okay, don't watch the film. <laughs> oh, this is annoying. Okay, this is annoying. I mean, people know this. And I thought, and my mind went, I thought, What's the worst that can happen here? You know, what, what honestly, am I going to go to hell for this? Like, I've arranged the snacks. I've got my friends coming round. You know, I know God doesn't want to do it, but you know what? This is not difficult. I'll just come back tomorrow and say sorry, you know. That's, that's, that's fine. God forgives me. Like, maybe he'll put some unhealthy images in my mind. I'm sure we can deal with that. A bit of counselling in years to come. be fine. No, no problem. That moment, I felt something. You know what it was? The fear of God. Okay, whoa, what on earth? And I can't tell you, it's not like God said, if you do this, this will happen. No, it was like, it's like when a kid goes, she goes, why, why should I do that? And it's when God says, because I said so. Well, okay, I cancelled my film. <laughs> uh, I did, it was a bit embarrassing. They were like, why are we cancelling? Yeah, you don't worry about that. The reason was the fear of God came to me. I want to ask you, do you know that feeling? Do you know that feeling recently? It's not an unhealthy part of your relationship with God. It's what it is to know the king of all kings. 
You don't know that feeling. You need to look again at the view of who God is. It's so tempting to be drawn off by the way of the world. Also, also the way, lots of, I have to say, themes in the church around, church in our country would say, no, no, the Father only means this. It only means this. And I think for us again, I want to just put it on your agenda again. Consider the kindness. Just please consider his kindness. Please. But consider his sternness. Because that's our God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I guess to finish, the question probably is, do you still wish you were here? <laughs> do you still wish you were wise? Wisdom is a very attractive goal. It, it leads to life. It's what Proverbs says, the most appealing ending there could be. But you know what? I admit it's hands up. It's a difficult path to set out on. I know some of you will struggle with what I've said. Some of you want to ask questions about that. You know, that's absolutely fine. We want to address it. We want to talk about those things. Maybe it's the start of a conversation for you. But I hate you to push this away because no, it's too difficult. Because what you're doing there is you're saying, actually, I'm choosing the path of folly. That's what the writer to Proverbs says. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It could be this morning that you're not a Christian and you recognize you need wisdom. It could be you recognize the path your life is on now is it's not heading in a good direction. That you need a greater authority than yourself to guide you. Well, actually, the Bible says that you need to do, what you need to do is to recognize that there is such an authority and to submit your life to him in reverence and fear. The great news about Christianity is that as we come to him, we find out to our heart's joy that that authority is not some merciless dictator or even some kind-hearted king. He's a loving father. But you know what? We've got to settle this. He's in charge. We don't mess with him. The majority of you Christians here, I guess for some of you, maybe it is you're feeling a bit lost in the moment. Maybe it's when I said at the beginning, who wants wisdom? You thought, brilliant, that's exactly what I need. I don't really know what to do in this situation. I want to know which path to take. I want to know how to, to see the world that I live in that's changing so much around me. Maybe you recognize there are things you've been doing that haven't been very wise and you want to change. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I wanted something practical out there. I wanted to know what things should I cut out, which things should I add in. Actually, you might think this isn't helpful for your situation. I, I think it is. I think it's the most helpful thing. I want you to step back and I want to ask the question, do you know what it is to fear God? Do you know how that works? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this isn't something just to pray in now, but we are going to pray for it. But this is something I just want you to think about. And like I said, a conversation start. Talk to your friends about this. A life group, bring this up. Maybe you're not in a life group at the moment. It's this summer. Uh, with others, please feel free to... Email in the office. I'm going to put a blog post up on Wednesday just exploring this a little bit more. Some other passages in the Bible about this a bit more. But please don't miss this. We want to be wise. We need to know what it is to relate to God properly.